Science is Funny. I'm your host, Private, aka Avery Adams. I'm 10 years old and currently in the fifth grade. Joining me today is Skipper, aka Craig Jeringi, who is going bald and forgets things. Hey, not funny, Private. <laughs> kind of funny, Skip. We have some shout outs today to Alex from Tantasqua Junior High. Thanks for the email and keep on listening. Thanks to the kind words from Adventures of Finn Caspian and Aaron's World, two great podcasts. Check them out. Uh, We also have some corrections to make. Um, It turns out that sand, which we said in a previous episode, was not valuable. It's actually one of the most valuable things our civilization needs. Homes, skyscrapers, bridges, and tunnels all need sand to make, so our apologies to sand. Skipper screwed up again. Hey, not funny, Private. It's kind of funny, Skip. Skip, my mother said that the Nobel Prize for Literature was not awarded this year, and I was wondering why it was called the Nobel Prize. Is it because the winners are very noble people? And who decides whether a person is noble or not? I don't get it. (laughs) Private, the prize is called the Nobel Prize, and it was named after Alfred Nobel, a Swedish chemist, engineer, inventor, and businessman. Let's do some research and see why it was named after him. Okay. So, Private, what did you find out about Alfred Nobel? He was born in Stockholm, Sweden in October of 1833. He was the third son of Emanuel, who was an inventor and engineer, and Carolina Nobel. At the time he was born, the family was very poor, so the father left and went to St. Petersburg, Russia, and became very successful there as a manufacturer of machine tools and explosives. He sent for the family and hired private tutors for Alfred, who loved chemistry and languages. As he grew older, in addition to Swedish, he learned how to speak English, French, German, and Russian. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, most people I know have trouble speaking English. Your mother, however, is very good at languages, too. She could speak Spanish, Tagalog, which is a language spoken in the Philippines, and Thai, which is spoken in Thailand, which makes sense, I guess. Cool. Moving along, in 1850, Alfred went to Paris to further his studies. There he met Ascanio Sobrero, who had invented nitroglycerin three years before. Wow, nitroglycerin? That's an explosive. Yes, and even though Sombrero had invented nitroglycerin, he was strongly against using it. Why? Skipper, the stuff was unpredictable. It would just explode whenever it had some heat or pressure put on it. Oh, I see why he didn't want anybody using it. Wow, you could blow yourself up pretty easily. And a lot of people did. In September 1864, a shed used for the preparation of nitroglycerin exploded at the family's factory, killing five people, including Nobel's younger brother, Emil. That's terrible. It must have been really hard on Alfred. It was, but Nobel thought he could make it safer, and he tried to find a way to control it. Why was that so important to him? Because people were constantly getting blown up, and it had a lot more power than gunpowder. So? Skip, explosives are very important for mining and building, and making tunnels and bridges and mining for ores, like iron, copper, and coal, and stuff like that requires blasting away tons of stone. And, of course, it seems like people are always at war for some stupid reason or other, so making it safer would make building and mining easier and safer. Oh, that was very noble of Nobel. Get it? Noble? Nobel? Not funny, Skip. Kind of funny, Private. And in 1867, Nobel succeeded. He had invented dynamite. It was much easier and safer to handle than nitroglycerin. And in 1875, Nobel invented gelgenite, much more stable and even more powerful than dynamite. Wow, he must have really liked to blow things up. 
I guess, and it made him really, really rich, too. At the time of his death, he had over 90 factories making weapons and explosives. Well, that's kind of strange for a pacifist. What's a pacifist? Well, a pacifist is a person who is against war or violence of any kind. Wait, Alfred Nobel, who owned 90 factories that made weapons and explosives, was against war and violence. (laughs) Yeah, it's strange, but it's true. Weird. But something even weirder happened in 1888. His brother Ludwig died, but by mistake, many newspapers published that it was Alfred who had died. One French newspaper published an obituary titled, The Merchant of Death is Dead. Nobel read the obituary and was terrified at the idea that he would be remembered this way. So he decided that when he actually did die, he would donate the majority of his money to start something he would be remembered for more than just a seller of things that killed people. So what did he do? In 1895, Nobel signed his last will and testament and set aside 94% of what he was worth to establish the five Nobel Prizes. The first three of these prizes are awarded for scientists who made important discoveries in physical science, chemistry, and medical science or physiology. The fourth prize is for a literary work in an ideal direction. Hey, Private, that's the one you'll win someday. That's not funny, Skipper. I wasn't being funny, Private. Your tone is sarcastic. Anyway, the fifth prize is to be given to the person or society that gives the greatest service to the cause of international peace, maybe by reducing the size of armies or in the creation or to further peace. Cool. He decided that the prizes would be awarded every year to anyone in the world who met those requirements. And in 2001, Alfred Nobel's great-great-nephew, Peter Nobel, asked the Bank of Sweden to give its award to economists to be given in Alfred Nobel's memory to separate from the five other awards. How much is this award? Well, the winner gets a gold medal and a check for about a million dollars. But many of the winners auction their medals off and get a two to three million more dollars for them. Hey, not bad. Can I borrow some money when you win? No way. Come on, Private. Have a heart. Skip, this may sound dumb, but why do we have a heart? Because we're thick. Because we're thick. That's stupid. I need more (laughs) than that. And now I'm really not going to loan you any money if I do get any. (laughs) Okay, okay. See, not every living thing has a heart. Or even blood, for that matter. Well, plants don't. Mm, And a lot of animals that are thin don't. Thin animals? What do you mean by thin animals? Don't you need a heart to live? (laughs) Nope. Sorry. Well, see, some living things that I'm thinking of are things like uh, bacteria and single-celled organisms like amoeba and paramecium, or like sponges and jellyfish. They don't have hearts or blood or tubes or anything. Wait, a sponge is an animal? No way! That's not right. Sponges aren't animals. They're house things that squeeze up water. Yes, way. A long time ago, before the invention of the microscope, people looked at the sponge, and because it looked like a plant, they thought it was a plant. But when they looked at the cells of the sponge, they don't look anything like the cells that plants have. They just look like the cells that animals have. What's the difference between animal and plant cells? Well, first, plants don't have a skeleton. They have a wall around every one of their cells that gives them the support they need to get bigger. But even though they don't have a heart and blood, they too also have a way to move fluids throughout their bodies in tubes called xylem and phloem. So why don't some animals have a heart and blood then? And don't tell me just because they're thin. Well, the reason is because these living things are some of the earliest many-celled living things to evolve. 
many cells, what does that mean? You see, the first cells started in the deep oceans, probably around the deep ocean vents, away from the harsh ultraviolet radiation coming from the sun. Because there were only one cell, they could get the materials they needed directly from the ocean and could release their waste directly back into the ocean. So when did cells start to stick together and become living things with many cells? Scientists think that the first single-celled living things appeared about 3.5 billion years ago, but it took almost 3 billion or 30,000 million years before any many-celled living things appeared. Wow, that's a long time. How come it took that long? You see, when you have a lot of cells, those cells that are way inside, away from the water, have a hard time getting the things they need. Why is it hard to get the stuff they need? Well, let's say that a cell needs some oxygen from the water. The more cells that there are between the water and that cell will slow down the oxygen, causing it to take longer and longer time to get there. And then it takes a lot longer for the waste the cell creates to get back into the water. Pretty soon, the cells that are the furthest away from the water die because they just can't get the stuff they need fast enough to get rid of the waste fast enough to live. Those poor cells. So how did the many cell living things solve the problem? For a long time, the thickest a living thing could get was three layers of cells. Not very thick. Sponges and jellyfish are only three cells thick for that very reason. Sponges and jellyfish are only three cells thick? They look thicker than that, Skipper. That's because they're hollow inside. Water flows around the outside and the insides of just their three puny layers of cells. How does the water get inside? In sponges, there are holes called pores all along the sides that the water can get inside and an opening at the top where it can get out. In jellyfish, there's a large mouth at the bottom of the bell-shaped body where the water can enter and exit when it undulates through the water. So when did things start to get thicker? Well, it did take billions of years, but it seems that a mutation in some proteins caused some cells to develop tiny thread-like structures called cilia. What did cilia do? The cilia would wave around and in doing so move water around. And the moving water helped to move the things the cells need toward them and the stuff they didn't move away from them. This started life along the path to more complex many-celled creatures like flatworms and eventually roundworms and clams and snails and slugs and octopus and squid. Each one along the way had to develop better and better ways to move fluids around to their more and more cells. What did they do to do that? The first thing was the development of tubes to carry the water that the cilia was moving. The tubes would go to the deeper cells, carrying the things they needed and carrying away the things they didn't. By the time the last group of clams and octopus and squid evolved, some of those tubes had developed simple valves and muscles to squeeze the fluid. And so a simple pumping structure was created, which pumped fluids, now called blood, directly to the cells through the tubes, which had also gotten thicker and stronger. How did that create hearts and blood? By pumping fluids directly to the cells, it allowed living things to have more and more cells and get thicker and thicker. By the time fish had evolved, the simple pumping structures had become real hearts, and the tubes had become arteries and veins and capillaries, and the stuff inside the tubes had become blood. So let me get this straight. The more cells a living thing has, the more it needs to have a heart to pump the blood through tubes to bring the stuff to all the cells that they need and take stuff away from the cells that it doesn't. Right. 
And when living things left the water and started to live on land, that heart had to get even bigger and stronger because the living things had to fight gravity in addition to being bigger, stronger, and thicker. So what happens if the heart stops pumping? Bad stuff. Like what? Well, if a person's heart stops, there won't be any way for the waste to be taken away from around the cells. So the wastes build up there. And because the wastes are around the outside of the cells, the cells won't be able to get the stuff they need to go into the cell. And then the cells will begin to die. And if too many of the cells die, then the living thing will die. Is that called a heart attack? Well, a heart attack happens when something blocks the blood vessels feeding the heart itself, and then the heart's own cells start to die. And if too many of them die, then the heart will stop, and the person's body could die if CPR isn't administered quickly enough. What's CPR? CPR stands for cardiopulmonary resuscitation. It means that someone would push down strongly on the chest to squeeze the heart underneath and keep it pumping blood to the person's cells until an ambulance and emergency people can arrive and take over. Everyone should know how to do that. Do you? Yep. As a lifeguard and a volunteer fireman, I learned how to apply CPR to someone. Cool. Yep. So exercise every day to keep your heart healthy and happy, which will keep your cells healthy and happy, which will keep you healthy and happy and alive, too. Yay, science. Yeah, you got that right, Private. Well, that's our podcast for this week. Come back next time for another episode of Science is Fun E. Oh, and don't forget to visit our website at www.scienceisfune.com or listen on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Podbean, or just search for Science is Fun E in the podcast section of your favorite podcast app. To suggest possible topics for upcoming episodes, email topics at scienceisfune.com. And remember, you could win a Science is Fun E t-shirt if you send in a suggestion and we use it in an episode. You can email me at private at scienceisfune.com or skipper at scienceisfune.com. I'm private, a.k.a. Avery Adams, hoping you have a great week. TTFN.